0: Hey everyone, before we get to today's content, I wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast from the 11FS Podcast Network, the Fintech Marketing Podcast hosted by me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing Officer of 11FS. Over the last couple of months, I've been speaking to heads of marketing from the world's leading fintech and financial service brands, Monzo, Revolut, Mastercard, Zero, Starling, Lemonade, and many more. We heard their insights and ideas on how they build brand and drive growth for their businesses, and now we can bring them to you. So if you're into fintech, FS, marketing, which I assume you are, uh, please check out our brand new podcast. Search for fintech marketing podcast on any podcast platform. Subscribe, share, leave us a review, and please do let us know your thoughts. Appreciate the support.
1: From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you interest rates plummet in the UK and US, contactless limits raised to combat COVID-19, and bunk goes green all across Europe. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to Episode 413 of Fintech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Lida Glyptis. How are you doing today, Lida. It's day
2: twelve of my captivity, Sarah. I'm not coping very well with this working from home, not leaving house situation. But other than that, very, very happy to be here with you.
1: Excellent. I don't think we've have we co-hosted before, or is this our first first time at this? It's
2: our first time and it has almost brought about the end of the world. (laughs) They couldn't possibly have us in the studio together.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we have to be kept in separate cities in order for this to go ahead without, you know, the imminent apocalypse right well as you may be able to tell from that um uh, we are practicing our social distancing and we're all remotely dialed in so we're not in the studio this week thanks to coronavirus but please bear with us the show will go on as always we're joined by some awesome guests um making his fintech insider news debut we have miles Stevenson CEO of modular how are you today miles
3: yeah very good thank you uh, fantastic to join you albeit remotely and um, Nice to be at home in Edinburgh, not travelling, um, albeit under strange strange circumstances.
1: Yes, you know, the thing I'm enjoying most about um, all of this is that I get to see inside people's living rooms, which is just fascinating. Making welcome return visits today, we have Carlo Gualandri, CEO and founder of Soldo. How are you today, Carlo?
4: I'm very well, and thank you for having me here.
1: You have a fantastically um, smart-looking office behind you, I should say.
4: Yes, yes. Well, I've been working from uh, home uh, uh, for a long time, so it's been part of the routine.
1: Do you have a proper setup and like the rest of us who are sitting at the kitchen table on a wobbly chair?
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm lucky. (laughs)
1: Um, And last, by no means least, we have Keith Gross, head of UK at Plaid. How are you today, Keith?
0: Hey, Sarah. Great to be back here again. And yes, I'm standing at a kitchen cart right now. So uh, (laughs) definitely not a formal office like Carlo's.
1: But you have got some lovely plants behind you. It's always nice to see greenery. That's right. (laughs) Okay. Well, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Unfortunately, much like last week, there is only one story to start with today. Interest rates slashed at home and abroad to combat the impact of coronavirus. So uh, we've taken this story from The Guardian, but it is, of course, in every major publication out there. Um, In the UK, the Bank of England recently slashed rates to 0.1%, an all-time low for the 326-year-old institution. Uh, The move follows a previous cut that reduced rates to 0.25%. The bank will also buy another £200 billion in corporate and government bonds. Uh, Meanwhile, across the pond, the Federal Reserve announced it would cut target rates to near zero, and it will buy around $700 million in treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Um, The Federal Reserve, Bank of England, and four other central banks have also come to an agreement a few weeks ago to lower rates on currency swaps. So thoughts on this one, please.
0: It it feels like the central banks have uh, pulled out the bazookas at this point, right? Right. I mean, just about everything they can do to throw at this, they they have. Um, so I, I think it's it's probably the right call, but um, it doesn't feel like we can go much further than this at this point.
2: It, it does make you wonder when it's going to come home to roost, though, because I totally agree with Keith. It is the only thing they could do, the absolutely right thing to do. Um, how long can they keep it up for when we don't know how this situation will pan out, how long it will last and how long it will be needed for? And when are we picking up the tab? Because even if they print money, we'll, we're going to pay for it some at some point, right? And it's, uh, it, it's an impossible situation because it's very <clears throat> easy to sit here and say, well, that's not enough or that's too much and it will burden us later on. But the reality is same as everyone else. They're faced with an unknowable situation that, has no clear end in sight and they have to to do something meaningful
4: oh hey if i can add uh, how much more they can go well uh, uh the continent has been living with negative interest rate for quite a long time so yes we know exactly how long this thing can go and uh and yeah it's closer near zero uh whatever it is from above uh is still normal territory is when it goes into negative that sort of the world turns upside down and a lot of very strange things uh, start to happen.
1: I mean, if, if I can say as well, you know, normally when something like this happens, you would expect, um, you know, lenders to, to, to start, you know, doing more business, if you like, and um, people who are offering, you know, savings accounts and deposit accounts to reduce their rates. But what we've really interestingly seen in the UK is almost the opposite. And I know it's because it's a maelstrom, you know, it's a perfect storm. But as of today, we've seen um, a huge number of mortgage providers uh, pull pull their their mortgages off the shelves. So um, 552 mortgages have been withdrawn in the last two weeks from the UK uh, market, equivalent to 10% of the total mortgage market. Now, um, the explanation that's been given by a lot of the the lenders is that um, they need to focus on their current customers because, as we've talked about before, some of the other measures that are going on um, are giving mortgage uh, holders and mortgage payers a a break in paying their their mortgage payments monthly because of everything that's going on, particularly with, um, you know, uncertain employment status. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side, you've also got um, savings accounts seeing their, their rates being bolstered. So Oak North, Hampshire Trust Bank and Atom all launched market beating rates on fixed term accounts um, this week. So uh, not only are we seeing kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's unprecedented, but as Carlo says, it's, we're still in positive territory. But actually, the impact it's having is not quite what you would expect it to normally have. And my personal opinion is that's because of Everything else that's going on means that these instruments are just not behaving the way that that the markets or the banks perhaps expect them to. But I, I may, you know, other people may have some more colour to add on that.
2: I, I think you're absolutely right. It's more, um, it's it's a very narrow splash of colour I've I've got to add, and that's as as you would expect around infrastructure because you you hear the announcements coming out of of Number Ten um, that set the direction of travel, and then you see the differential speed with which various providers respond because at the end of the day you're only as fast as your infrastructure so you see the challengers coming out um fairly quickly with a this is what we've done to to follow the government advice i have received six texts from my mortgage company saying we will get in touch when we've got a solution <laughs> um and the reality is that what sounds like a, a simple and magnanimous suspension in payment or adjustment in in um in interest rate doesn't just come with a whole host of financial implications at the top layer, but it comes with a whole host of practical implications if your infrastructure isn't designed to deliver a change like that without nine months of engineering work. And and this is where a lot of the um The limitations that the industry has been living with are are, are coming back to, to haunt us a little bit, because even if there's the people who have the balance sheet that can take those changes, don't have the infrastructure that can deploy them.
1: Miles, did you want to add something there?
3: Yeah, I, I think the, the real pertinent point that Lida makes there is speed. And what we're seeing is things changing so, so rapidly this time that there needs to be a quick response. People are having to make incredibly quick decisions around how they keep businesses running, how consumers react. And, this, whilst, and I think any relief or help is clearly good. This just seems to be taking too long, or it's an example of something taking too long to work its way through the system. And particularly, as you highlight, if there are, a challenge is in then getting that through platform systems processes, then w- will it really have the impact that, that it needs in the market? And therefore, would it be better directed at how do we get funds, cash to businesses to keep people employed in a quick and a, an efficient way?
1: Keith, did you want to yeah. add to that?
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with Miles. Like, I think one of the biggest issues we're facing here is I think the first wave of, of people that are going to be hit by this is really small businesses. Um, that have had to close down because of the quarantine, and so how you're going to trickle down this money and get lend- loans into those people's hands? I think that's going to take time. And one of the issues we're seeing as well is that I think a lot of lenders at this point are a little worried about the health of their existing book, and so they need they're thinking about that versus how do I then take money and get it out to the people that need it immediately? And I think until that happens, you know, it's going to the jury's going to be out on how much of an, in fact this is actually going to have.
1: Carlo, yeah, did you want to I, add? I,
0: I believe
4: that at the end of the day, the risk uh, volatility that has exploded and nobody knows is, is way more relevant than 15 basis point uh, on the interest rate. Uh, the real thing is nobody knows how to, uh, uh, to, to measure uh, the risk and how to score uh, the risk and how to price the risk. And until this uh, thing settled down a little, it's, it's just that uh, uh yeah whoever has uh, loans out will keep those of course uh, but before adding to that uh, you want to know what's going to happen
1: so it sounds very much like, uh, we, you know, as with everything in this space, we're going to have to watch it unfold. And indeed, by the time this podcast goes out, things might have changed again. But that is the world we are now living in. I'm um, going to move us on to um, another change that's happened this week. Um, also, um, obviously, uh, <laughs> as a result of the impact of coronavirus, um, and that's that the contactless limits uh, will rise by £15 in the UK. Um, so as of April the 1st, UK customers will be able to spend £45 without entering their PIN to help minimise the spread of coronavirus. So the idea is that they don't want people, lots of people touching the same piece of plastic. Um, The new rate won't apply everywhere. And some shops will take longer than others to implement it, as always with anything like this. Um, the last limit raise apparently took two years to put in place, but the British Retail Consortium says it's working quickly to apply it for next week. So I guess fingers crossed, everybody. Um, Ireland's going to see a similar limit increase from €30 euro to €50. Euro. Uh, we've seen sort of other similar moves a- across Europe and the Netherlands. They have upped the um, the SCA requirements. So uh, you used to have to do, enter your PIN after €50 euros worth of contactless transactions, and now they've upped that to €100. Euro. Um, do we do we think this is going to have any effect at all,
0: Keith? I, I think this is a net positive move. Um, you know, as long as fraud stays under control, I think the more we can enable contactless payments, the better it will be for consumers longer term. Um, I think this goes back to one of the comments that that Leda made earlier, though, which is it's it kind of shows you how hard it is to make some of these infrastructure changes. I've heard that part of the reason is take taking Ireland a little bit of time to make this shift from thirty to fifty. Is an infrastructure need and just how do you actually put this into practice um so i think this is a, a world now where you're starting to see um you know how can we make changes quickly to make things easier for consumers and businesses um i think this is definitely a, a positive move to prevent the use of cash and the trans transfer of germs that way um but i think it's interesting how different countries are taking longer or faster to implement it
1: leader did you want to add to that i do i actually um
2: i i agree I agree with that. I, I am. I, th- I have a dual concern. One is the fact that quite a lot of the implementation is left up to the um, uh, discretion of retailers. I, I I may have lectured my local Tesco cashiers more than once about the fact that actually contactless on a phone is of two-factor authentication, and they shouldn't have the same <laughs> limit. Damn it! Um, but the reality is, Tesco has made a choice to treat the the device the same way that they treat the card, and that's their choice. So so while you're leaving that choice up to retailers, aid causes confusion because people will default to assuming that the lowest common denominator is the most widespread denominator, and it creates, uh, to Keith's point, those those differentials in implementation because the reality is every such change comes at some <coughs> cost. To whatever infrastructure you're using, uh, not so much on the on the on the retailers uh, necessarily, but on their banks. And this is where uh, the the sort of fleets of of pos machines that have been where banks have chose or or acquirers have chosen to save money in the past few years that cannot be upgraded remotely by just pushing the upgrade out will cause a massive um, potential delay here and the reality is the only way that you would get this done harmoniously is if the the regulator or the legislator said okay this is the deadline people and and off you go and if you try to save money on this before you can't save money on it anymore uh but we're in that unique moment in time where no business will be forced to have that capital outlay so i agree with everything he said in terms of how positive this could be But if it's left to the discretion of the retailers, we might see a very, very uneven um, adoption.
1: Miles, did you want to add to that?
3: I agree. The intent's absolutely right. And it's a positive move and in the right direction. I just wonder where the the new limit came from. So £45, is that something that's perhaps a little bit too logical? Sounds familiar in terms of the, I think, the average um, debit card transaction value in, in the UK? Um, but given the changes in the market and we're now being encouraged to go shopping less frequently, therefore average basket sizes will rise should it have been 100 or 150. So good and positive, but what's it really aligned to?
1: I agree. I I thought it was a very strange number because my, my first thought was, well, where can I use my debit card at the moment? If it's not online, it's Tesco. I can't, or Waitrose or Asda or Morrison's, you know, we were not among the lucky few to have signed up to online grocery delivery before this happened. So now we cannot get online grocery delivery. So I have to go to the supermarkets, which is a whole other question. But as you say, when I'm there, I've been told to go once a week. Um, and I, you know, for, for two of us, with two people in my household, £45, yeah, we can probably do a week shop for that. If you're feeding a family of four or six, you know, £45 is not going to get you very far. So it does it does feel like a very, as you say, a strange choice. If somebody did make the decision to go with £45 because it was the average basket size, did nobody think, actually, the average basket has gone rocketing up? And whilst we're at it, if we're talking about fraud controls, if the only place you can currently spend is a supermarket, arguably online, but it's the only place you can why, surely that takes, in my mind, that might take some of the concerns about fraud away Because there's there's literally very few places you can actually use that card, certainly in the UK. Um, Keith, you're not... Oh, sorry, Carlo, did you want to go first? Uh,
4: Yeah, yeah. I I think uh, I can think of a very low-tech solution to this. It's called disposable gloves. Uh, With probably one cent worth of latex, uh, you can go as high as you want, as many times as you want, given that uh, at the end of the day, you went all the way there to the supermarket. So you're out of... Uh, your home, uh, you are actually interacting with somebody. So the whole point of this is just not to touch uh, four digits uh, on a keyboard. And uh, yes, uh, well, there are are many ways you can defend from uh, uh, such a dangerous thing without having to upgrade or change the entire infrastructure. That, by the way, is going to evolve by itself, obviously, step by step.
1: I think I think the the problem there, Carlo, is if you know where we can all get latex gloves, I'd be very pleased to hear it. Um, you may have them all, but I can tell you that they are not available anywhere else. And in fact, the NHS I think is struggling to get them. So, um, Keith, did you have a, a sensible point to add there? Sorry, we got distracted well, there. Well,
0: I just thought one like interesting point that's sort of underneath this is, which at least I've seen in my neighbourhood in London, is a lot of stores that used to accept cash are now saying we're temporarily you know, card only or contactless only. And so I think there's a question in my mind of is there a segment of completely unbanked people here that are really struggling because of the coronavirus and the contactless limit doesn't really help them if they're not already on that system. So I do think we need to be important to think about not getting rid of cash entirely until everyone can be supported on the ecosystem as well.
1: I, I 100% agree with that. And actually, my, my team have published quite um, a bit of sort of uh, thought. Well, I hate the term thought leadership. We've written a lot about our thoughts on how important it is to make sure that the vulnerable um, groups in society who do rely on cash are, are not excluded, particularly at this this moment in time, um, because they're already struggling. Um, the last thing we need to do is take away their means of of, of, of accessing the, the medicines and food and things they need. Um, moving us on to yet another COVID story. You may be sensing a theme here. Um, Story number three is uh, COVID credit comes together for the self-employed. So in just 48 hours, the UK fintech community created a prototype that could help self-employed professionals self-certify income lost due to COVID-19. After Simon Taylor from 11FS tweeted about using open banking tools to help freelancers and non-salaried employees, staff from Fronted and Credit Kudos hopped in to make it a reality. So, uh, leveraging open banking technology, the group of volunteers created COVID Credit, an app that uses patent recognition algorithms to calculate income figures. Uh, the team has already taken the prototype to stakeholders at the FCA, the Treasury um, and Revenue and Customs to present this idea. Um, and for more on this, we spoke to Simon Taylor, who had this to say.
5: Past Saturday, I sent out a tweet I'm around about 10 o'clock in the morning asking the question, Could sole traders, freelancers, the self-employed in the United Kingdom use open banking to evidence to the United Kingdom government that they indeed had lost work due to the coronavirus? You see, in the United Kingdom, the UK government has announced unprecedented measures to support both businesses and individuals through this time of crisis. But a lot of people have been asking the question, what about the self-employed? What about the hairdressers? What about the tradespeople? What about the people that really are the lifeblood of the UK economy? Would they be able to recover when, quote, life goes back to normal? So asking the question, what could open banking do? And speculating that if I could look at several months of transaction history, surely I could see that these people were, in fact, uh, gainfully employed and had lost income, and I could make a payment to them. Simon van Kalina from Fronted then got in touch and said, the team from fronted and the team from credit kudos could build that in a weekend and uh, within about a half of the day uh, we had a slack group set up we had uh, about 35 people volunteering and 72 hours later covidcredit.uk was live uh, and it allows any self-employed person to log on uh, to declare themselves as no longer able to work to declare their previous income to declare their current income and then connect their bank account to this system to provide a report that could be used by Her Majesty's government or a bank call by anybody else to see that somebody has indeed lost work due to the coronavirus crisis. So we hope this is helpful. Uh, we're in discussions with various parts of government, and we really hope that people uh, get value from this. Uh, it's amazing what can happen in a weekend when you have to stay at home. Um, and uh, I hope you're saying safe, people. Uh, take care.
1: So, um, so since we since that was recorded, the UK government has um, literally just this minute announced aid for the self-employed. So, um, self-employed workers will be able to apply for a grant of up to two thousand five hundred pounds a month to help them cope with the financial impact of coronavirus. The money will be paid in a single lump sum, but would not begin to arrive until the start of June at the earliest. Uh, Rishi Sunak, that's the UK chancellor, told the self-employed, "You have not been forgotten." So, um, the, the the UK government obviously has has recognised the self-employed, which is a good start. Um, but it seems to me that there, that there are still uh, uses for, for this for this tool, um, and I think also it's definitely worth talking about. You know, uh, as Simon said, the speed at which the fintech community can move to put a prototype together. You know, sh- should they should they have the the desire to do so? Keith, you're rubbing your hands. Do you want to jump straight in?
0: I, I think this is a great idea, and it just shows exactly how open banking when used. In the right way can provide great solutions for consumers. Um, I've reached out to Freddie at, at Credit Kudos and Simon um, to offer Plaid's help for this project as well. Um, I think it's a great example of the fintech community helping out. Um, you know, Plaid has just decided that we're going to offer free access to anyone for the next three months in European Union or the UK to try and help provide some of these solutions as well. And so, um, I'm really excited that that this project is out there and is. Showing the value of open banking and how it can actually really help people in times of need as well.
1: Miles, were you? Did you want to jump in there?
3: Yeah, I think likewise. I think it's a great example of open banking in, in action, and we've, we've in some ways been waiting for all these sort of use cases to come out after the the build and of the infrastructure and the plumbing. And um, it's, I think, it really sets your mind thinking about how quickly it could go into other areas and. And not just for consumers, but perhaps for businesses around the, I mean, there's an amazing, on one level, amazing amount of support that the UK government have announced with the um, business loan interruption um, or business interruption loan scheme. Um, and, you know, for example, how does that get more traction more quickly? And is there an open banking use case to identify the businesses that need the help and rather than waiting for people to apply, actually getting the cash out there quickly, to to help those businesses sooner rather than later. So hopefully it will evolve quickly into these other areas as well and and demonstrate how open banking can really help and potentially even into PAYE, NI, VAT rebates and and, um, delayed payments. I think all of this could be identified through open banking um, into small business um, bank accounts. I'll tell
1: you what, anything that speeds up VAT and PAYE and any kind of interaction with HMRC is is good as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Lida, did you want to comment on that?
2: I, just to add t- t- two points that I think um, are very powerful about this story. One is how people in this community came together to produce something super quickly that is in no way Directly beneficial to them as either businesses or people, um, and and I think it's quite telling of how this community operates, and quite useful to remember at times like this what what we're capable of. Um, because one of the one of the saddest things to me at least about this pandemic is that it's possibly the first time in recorded history where the whole of humanity is afflicted by a thing that is equalizing us all that doesn't come with an enemy and yet we don't see a a sense of unity and communities coming together the way you you would hope um uh, so it's nice to see that inside our own little ecosystem people are coming together to do good work because it's the right thing to do uh, with absolutely no ulterior motive. And I really do think that that's worth celebrating the people from three separate companies four with plaid coming into the mix. And I'm sure more will jump in soon are coming to do something that will not benefit them. Not personally, not as companies. And that gives me goosebumps. The second thing that I think is really worth noting is that um, we've all spent a very long time inside organizations, particularly the banks I used to work for, and with clients, trying to um, figure out how to use this open banking thing to create value, to make money. Um, And we've we've all been saying for a long time, you're not going to get the ideas by looking at it. But at some point, problems will start arising that you will solve differently because you have it. And it didn't feel like a good answer for a very long time, particularly for the big organizations that had to spend so much money getting ready for it. But it's incredible, to Keith's point, to see a big challenge coming in and a solution like this being deployable, partly because we now have that infrastructure.
1: Yes, I mean, it's, um, it's one we'll definitely be, you know, keeping an eye on. And it's really nice to have kind of a, a positive story in there um, amongst all the, the, the less positive stories related to COVID-19. All right, we're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back very shortly. This episode of FinTech Insider is brought to you by MyTech Systems, a global leader in identity verification technology. With over 80 million users and trusted by the world's largest banks for KYC onboarding and re verification, MyTech provides the highest assurance levels available, building trust in today's digital world. See how at mytechsystems.com. That's M I T E K. MyTech. Switching up your morning routine now we're all in social distancing? So are we. In fact, we've started a daily morning show. On the FinTech Insider Breakfast Show, we chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests, all calling in remotely, of course. It goes live on LinkedIn every morning at 8.30am BST. And now, back to the news. Uh, So our next story is that SoftBank's buying spree has ended. Um, So after suffering a 50% drop in its share price since February, the Japanese conglomerate will sell $41 billion in assets. It will allocate that money to share buybacks and debt reduction. The sale is expected to include SoftBank's stake in Alibaba. Its shares in SoftBank's cell phone carrier business uh, or Yahoo Japan could also be on the block. Um, In recent years, the company has invested nearly $100 billion in startups through its Vision Fund. Uh, Recipients include Uber, very notably WeWork, um, and also Oak North here in the UK. So SoftBank has also recently suffered a fall in bond prices and credit downgrades from S&P and Moody's. Um, After the recent market crash, the company's shares in Uber have also fallen well below what it paid for them. So thoughts on this? Who wants to go first? Carlo, you raised your hand.
4: Yeah, no, I would say no big news. Uh, totally written on the wall. Well before all of this. Uh, and uh, and what? Coronavirus is, is just spreading uh, uh, across the world uh, and it's uh, bringing with it a chilling factor on everything finance related. But it's uh, back again to risk. Uh, finance is risk averse. The moment uh, they start... Uh, uh, fearing uh, and they start uh, getting into the herd mentality of uh, uh, self-reinforcing fear, then obviously uh, the, the the financing uh, is going to dry up, uh, less money being around, everybody's buttoning down the hatches and making sure they survive the
0: storm. Keith? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with this, that this has probably been coming for a long time, but I, but I also think there's just some horrible timing. Um, I don't know if you've looked at the WeWork bond prices, but just to, to have a disaster that forces closures of all of their offices at the same time that SoftBank had just poured a lot of support in there. I think you know, that's, just, that's just unfortunate timing, but it does feel like um, maybe some, some of the years of these gigantic funds pouring money into um, scale-ups and high growth, high customer acquisition cost companies, um, it might be a little bit of time before we see that world again.
1: Yeah, and then as everybody said, you know, uh, there w- there have been questions about you know SoftBank's fund and its and its spending for for a while now. And as we know, the the minute the markets sort of start jumping around, then um, it becomes incredibly hard to raise you know money for anything. Um, so you know, SoftBank's uh, second Vision Fund, you know, the-, the 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 size of it was scaled back already in February, and um, I imagine that uh, this is um, this is only going to add to that contraction.
4: Um, uh, yeah, but if they can. If you just look at it with a little bit of historical perspective, uh, all these things have happened already. You don't have to go back to the last century, just in the very early beginning of this one, and the, the, the dot-com crash and, and 2008. It's it's a quite uh, quite predictable pattern. Uh, uh, the response of the crisis. Uh, but also the the whole bubble up uh, of pricing and long boom every time you read about a long boom okay you start uh, you start to worry because uh, uh, when everybody starts talking about that uh, that that's when is any uh, uh, at a point weakest point and then coronavirus is is nothing more than accelerating this trend
2: Leader. I, I could not agree more. Uh, in fact, I agree with everything that has been said and the only thing I, I can add is that this is part, part of the course. Yes, the, the fact that uh, coronavirus has, has hit has accelerated some of some of the um, behaviors. Some of the uh, performance of the investments has, has, uh, has created a, a bit of a, of a swing. But the reality is when in, in, in the VC business, that's what it looks like. That's the cycle. You invest, you disinvest. You this is it. We we very often try to read quite a lot into it, and it is as likely that there is a backstory as that this is just part of the cycle.
1: Miles, did you want to add anything to that? I, I
3: think it drives out a, a whole set of additional questions around investment structures as well. So so yes, there's the there's the ability to raise money um if you like pure valuations but then the basis on which people have have raised money which could be around chasing valuation um preference share structures and i think therefore there's a a lot that can unwind as well as the headline valuation and does that create some challenges around people exiting um revaluation and, and what it means around if the deadlines created around forcing sales then that that's clearly not a good place to be so I think it will have a um, a knock-on impact and it could start to roll through a, a number of different areas and implications for, for, for different businesses.
1: I think um, so I, I think it's obviously it's going to be interesting I think you know uh, WeWork the, again if we're talking the writing was on the wall for, for SoftBank I think the writing was rather on the wall for WeWork uh, already and WeWork and SoftBank were, were already engaged in a uh, a dispute, I suppose, would be to, to be put it politely, um, with SoftBank saying, you know, that they they weren't going to they weren't going to go ahead with some of their commitments because you know there were outstanding uh, questions that they had about about WeWork's audit and things like that. Um, I imagine for the other companies, sort of somebody you know, something like Oak North, what would there be much impact on them from this? Do we think? Um, I mean, I would have thought somebody like Oak North is, is tracking along very nicely. Thank you very much. And that this, you know, but any thoughts?
4: I I, I wouldn't classify Oak North in the same league as Uber or WeWork. Come on. Come on. They are completely different. It doesn't mean that if you're in a crazy moment where the, uh, let's say, most common bet of uh, VCs is unlimited money can get you anywhere. That means that everybody getting funded in the past five years uh, uh, subscribed to the same logic. Oconorth is a very profitable company, very well managed. They just happen to have accepted money from the, mm-hmm. uh, from them.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's that's kind of the point I was driving at there. It's kind of like people are saying, oh, you know, is the writing on the Wolf of SoftBank's companies? It very much depends on the company. As we agreed, we work and Uber already in that struggling area. It also
2: depends on whether you choose to read more than a natural cycle into mm-hmm. what SoftBank is doing. So if if you disagree with the point I was making earlier and think that this active disengagement from companies that are, as was rightly pointed out, problematic, but also from companies that are not, because what's wrong with Alibaba, um, and you choose to read um, there's trouble in SoftBank, um, narrative in this then of course any company in the book might face challenges but uh, but we have no reason to believe that there is a bigger story than what we're looking at here it's t- to me this this could just be a portfolio rebalancing exercise and nothing more
1: okay well, let's uh, let's leave that one there and move on to our next story, which is that Revolut has launched stateside. So the European challenger officially entered the U.S. market on Tuesday after months of testing. Its app-based service will offer Americans early salary deposits, the ability to send and request money, um, and 28 currencies that can be held in app, among other features. Uh, The company is also holding stress tests to accommodate any spikes uh, in usage. Um, And right before the announcement, Revolut denied rumors that it was facing financial difficulties due to coronavirus. Uh, Founder and CEO Nick Staronsky pointed to the company's $500 million raise as proof. Um, Other Revolut uh, US-specific features include bill splitting, purchase roundups and free withdrawals from 55,000 US ATMs. Um, so what do we think about, I guess, your, uh, Revolut's chances in the U.S. market? There's been a lot of talk from the European challengers that they're going to go that way. Um, I think there's probably a conversation to be had about whether those that haven't done it yet do do it in the current climate, or whether they put those those plans on on hold. Um, Revolut has obviously decided just to carry on with the plan. So uh, what do we think are its chances of success? Keith?
0: Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, looking at Keith's yeah. face. Uh, it's like I, I guess as the as uh, the token American here, I should go first. I mean, I, I'm excited. I'm excited to see the the neo banks launching. As you said, I think all of them are are trying to come to the U.S. or at least all the big ones right now. Um, I do think it is going to be difficult going because um, the whole rationale behind going to the U.S. is there's higher interchange and you can build a sustainable business model on that there. But you have to get network effects and scale, and so. How are you going to acquire all those customers um, when there's a lot of competing products that have the same offering? And so I really do think it's going to come down to a lot of brand and a lot of customer acquisition costs. And I think this is a tough environment for that. So I'm wishing Revolut the greatest success, but I think it is also going to be a tough road.
1: Carlo? Uh,
4: I totally agree. I'm actually very curious to see uh, all these uh, claims. Let's go to the US. Uh, Surely a very big... uh, a very big uh, uh, potential reward, uh, uh, but, but very tough environment. And also, yes, uh, higher uh, interchange fees, so potentially sustainable business. On the other hand, very high, especially in the consumer side, I would say, uh, a very high cashback and uh, all sort of uh, uh, give back uh, uh, mechanisms that are taken for granted uh, by the average US uh, uh, card holder. So, Yes, you you earn a lot in uh, interchange, but you have to give back a lot, uh, a lot of that uh, on one hand. And on the other hand, uh, the reality is the well, the U.S. is a very big uh, uh, market, but a very self-centered and, and, and uh, closed market. Uh, not many Europe, uh, not many U.S. customers uh, uh, will really worry about foreign exchange and that kind of thing. They will not be really exposed to that. So one of the key um, selling proposition of Revolut is just not going to particularly uh, be relevant uh, in, in that context. So uh, that's, that's also a challenge. Big enough market that even the slice of travelers can be a profitable niche, uh, but surely challenging for, uh, from, from many other point of view. So yeah, nice, nice to see uh, how things will play. Very interesting.
1: I think also I'm gonna point out that traveling, uh, you know, getting that small slice of travelers is great if they're legally allowed to travel. And interchange is great if people can use cards to buy things. But if their shops are closed and they can't buy anything, neither of these things are gonna work. Leader.
2: It's an interesting um it's an interesting time and I I agree with you, Sarah. It's a very revolute thing to do and a very Nikolai thing to do to say, Well, that was the plan and I'm gonna press on ahead. Um as a European customer Uh, getting all the notifications and the letters and the emails um, saying it's happening and saying we don't have any financial issues has felt a little bit over labored but you can understand that this is a pretty big deal from the from the inside out I think the, the the two biggest challenges they're going to be faced with one is that the timing is terrible so they're going to launch there's going to be a splash and as you rightly point out Carlo the, uh, the fundamentals of what they're offering will not only be irrelevant to the vast majority of the population. The Midwest will probably be like what, um, but also even for the people for whom it is relevant, it's uh, it's a moot point now. Will will they register now for when this situation ends and they can trap? Probably not. They'll go. Oh, I should think about that later. The second challenge is a little more um, insidious, and that's. For better or worse, we've been saying that the US retail banking system is in dire need of a shakeup. Uh, But it takes more than one challenger to give that shakeup. And the reality is that the behaviors of the consumer are molded by what is available. And it takes quite a long time for those behaviors to change. So um, it may be it may have been almost better for them to have delayed and entered the market with a couple of other challengers to have that sea change. Because the, the reality, every time I go to the US, it, it, it startles me how much basic stuff you have to go into the branch for. And that is a behavior that is ingrained in people the way it was ingrained in all of us. The sea change requires more than one entity, and definitely an entity that will not be able to make a splash because of the timing. All that said... I hope that this has been somehow reflected into their planning because I do think that um the US market deserves the challengers and uh I, I do wish these guys um every success. Miles, do you want to comment
1: on that?
3: Yeah, I think for me the I think the as you I think you've all said the the question is how do you find that particular product market fit in, in a very different market in the US. and But what, what I do think Revolut have done amazingly well in the UK is drive innovation, new products, features um, to be a, a, to have a very broad set of capability. And I think that will stand them in good stead of taking that approach to find whatever it is that's going to create that adoption um, in the US. So if they, they're able to do that, obviously in very different times, but in the same way they have in the UK, They'll find uh, whatever's required to, to drive the growth in a, in a different market.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know. Just one final point from me: that of course, going into the U.S. market, you have an awful lot of other people who are doing similar things. You know, Robinhood isn't a, Robinhood's. You know, holistic offering isn't a million miles away from what Revolut does. You've got Chime with its, I think, five million customers. Definitely millions anyway, um, you know, that have already kind of hit that early adopter market. So I think we're all sitting here uh, interested to see what happens next. And of course, we will continue to follow uh, their progress in the US. But for now, we're going to the other side of the world. Uh, Our next story is that Zinja has drawn investment from world investments. Um, The Australian neobank will receive 433 million Australian dollars from the Dubai firm over two years. It will receive $160 million immediately um, and then $273 million in tranches thereafter. So the bank's founder and chief executive calls the funding the largest single investment in an Australian neobank or startup. That is a true statement. Um, Zinger opened its Series D round to large investors earlier this month. At that time, it raised $20 million. Um, previously, uh, just for context, its Stash savings account had received $100 million in deposits in its first three weeks. Um, So there's a few different bits to this story. Anybody who listens to this regularly knows how much I I love our friends down under um, and keep a close eye on the fintech products that are are being launched. Um, I have to say that this is, um, it sounds like a fantastically large amount. I'll just turn it into pounds, um, which is basically half, so it's about £215 million pounds in total. Um, the first tranche is about £80 million, pounds, which is basically what's the, the way that Starling received a lot of its funding. So, its funding came in tranches, and it was about £80 million um, in one go. So, yes, big numbers. Yes, it's good news. Um, just just don't get overexcited because the Australian dollars, bless them, um, make things look a little bit more exciting than perhaps they might be otherwise. Yeah, I mean, yeah, why not? Australian dollars are probably worth more than pounds at the moment, definitely. Um, The interesting point there, I think, just to bring in that contextual piece, is that uh, one of the first products it launched was this Stash account, which is a very high interest savings product. A lot of the Australian neobanks did the same thing at the same time. In, it, apparently they had planned to uh, attract about $125 million uh, to that account in the first year. They attracted $100 million in the first three weeks um, and then thought, ah, perhaps maybe we have to rethink this. So they stopped accepting new customers for that account so that they could focus on uh, existing customers, making sure that they kept uh, funding those, um, those, those interest rates. Um, as Yet, uh, Zinja doesn't have any revenue-generating products, so this uh, funding source will be very welcome amid turmoil, amid having all those customers who are expecting those high interest rates, um, and also helping them get other things out there on the market. Um, so that's Sarah's Aussie synopsis. Um, does anybody else would anybody else like to to give their views, sir? Leader,
2: I'm a fan, uh, as you know, of Zinja and everything they're doing. Um, I, I could not claim to be as much of a fan of the Australian fintech scene as you just because that's not possible, (laughs) but, uh, but I do, I do like, as I was saying, you know, if, if the U S is in need of a shakeup, then, you know, the, uh, the market in Australia has been way too comfortable for way too long. And, uh, and what Zinja, um, are doing is, is really paving the way for quite a lot of other players, customer expectations, all good stuff. Um, but what you described uh, there, Sarah, is not a challenge just for Zincha, it's for for all the challengers. Profitability b- remains elusive. And um, and we are all hoping, I definitely am, and I know given where we all sit, we're all hoping that um, the funding that keeps getting pumped into these players that we know and love in all of the different jurisdictions will get them to the, the scale tipping point that will allow for profitability to come come into the mix. But that hasn't quite happened yet for for any any of them. There are pockets of activity that are profitable. There are certain products that are profitable. But overall, essentially doing traditional banking in a way that is cheaper, better, definitely fairer for the customer. still doesn't seem to deliver the goods unless you have serious scale so let's hope that one of these funding rounds for all of the challenges we're observing will get them to that tipping point to give them that genuine on your own two feet sustainability as a business keith
0: yeah i think i think to echo that last point my, my question here is what are those funds going to be used for and is it taking them into lending to be able to actually support their long-term savings rates um, and build a sustainable business? Is it expanding to new geographies? Um, I think it's always exciting to see neobanks raise these big rounds, but then it's how you're going to put them to use in the right way. And I imagine plans are probably changing in light of the macro environment. And I'm sure everyone's very focused on union economics and figuring out how we get to sustainability as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, the lending products are something that's very much been um, on, their, on the horizon for them for a while. Um, the uh, Australians are perhaps even more obsessed with property than the Brits. So um, I think uh, originally they were going to go down the mortgage route again. Yeah, they're having to reassess in the current climate. We'll wait and see. Um, Miles, you wanted to add something there.
3: Yeah, I think in, in relation to Lisa's point about that um, tipping point of getting to profitability, the, the key question in the amount around it being a large amount and exciting is the amount of runway. So does it give enough runway versus the burn rate to actually get there? And and if it does, brilliant, great. Um, but if not, then obviously there's a question around um, how, how they get there, particularly in the current environment. Any more? Yeah, if I can add, uh, it's uh, it's challenging to be beating
4: uh, an established player with a lot of volume and scale at what, at the end of the day, is mostly an unprofitable game. Uh, it's it's uh, really... It begs the question, yeah, and if you succeed, then uh, you're going to be in a position where you have uh, negative unit economics uh, uh, because nobody wants to pay for the product. It's The real thing is, if you think of uh, what's behind providing a real banking product uh, and the fact that everybody uh, expects that to be free at any level, even the ATM network that in itself is a bunch of machines and maintenance and things. and and people loading them with cash, but everything must be free. Everything must be free, and I don't want to pay for anything. Actually, given that I'm smart and I'm digital, when the time comes for my mortgage, of course I will shop around for the best price. Challenging environment to make money uh, with, with such consumer. Love, they give love away for free, all the consumers. Money, well,
3: different thing. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, um, with that, I will move us on to our final story today, which is um, another story about another bank. This one is about bunk. So uh, Dutch bank bunk goodness me, say that quickly, um, has expanded its green card to 30 countries. So the Dutch Neobank has extended its MasterCard partnership um, and it will now offer the product throughout Europe. So the green uh, card is a product that um, when users spend €100 on that card, uh, the bank will plant one tree. Um, So far, the bank has planted 100,000 trees through the initiative. Um, it's also worth noting the bank also doubled deposits in 2019. It now holds 433 million euro. Um, the card itself uh, that goes with this account is made out of sustainable metal, so it needs to be replaced less often. Um, and apparently it's thus far offset the equivalent of 32,560 flights from Paris to New York. Um, late last year, bank expanded into all EU countries as well as Norway and Iceland. Um, at the time, it had only offered its standard cards across Europe. Um, just I suppose there's two points there. one is that um you know green e s g sustainable, yes, very popular um two bunk is a product that actually is doing very well and it charges for its products, so that's another interesting note when we're talking about those neobanks uh models, most of what you get from bunk you actually have to pay for um Lida, did you want to jump in there
2: can i can I lodge a complaint with the producers? That I always get an insanely ridiculous and finally story when I am on point and I can't get the sentences out because I can't stop laughing. And you get a pretty serious, uplifting <laughs> sustainability story. I think I think they're doing this on purpose. Me. Um,
1: bribery, leader. That's how you get oh away man, with it. Bribery. Oh I
2: know. No, I have to pay for the service, like like you do with Bunch. Um, I, I think you're you're um you're you're right, Sarah. We're we're looking at um at a population of consumers and I, I read somewhere and I haven't done my homework so I don't have it with me but I read somewhere a while ago that um, bunks uh, average user is quite a lot younger and it does chime so I not my generation uh, but people with a conscience quite a lot younger than us uh, and, and they there is a there is a gear shift in uh, in a generation of people who will not pursue their narrow self-interest but will, consume services that come with a conscience and if they come with a conscience and a price tag that's okay and then you have a niche business and a sustainable one because you have a very clear monetization path
1: i think um, bunk also uh, people don't know when you sign up to bunk you can choose um, how you want your deposits invested so if you don't want those deposits invested in uh um I think it's i can't remember what it is, but I think it's alcohol you know tobacco um you can also choose whether you want to receive interest or not so it's um i don't necessarily think it's sharia compliant but it definitely um is going along those lines in in some of its um some of its options that it gives its users so I would say that the green card to me is not just a gimmick it's it's obviously as a company they're quite committed to to this concept of kind of um well as you say up appealing to people with a conscience um Keith, did you want to add on to that?
0: Uh, so I'll chime in with a slightly opposite view, where I think I think sustainability, it, I, I'm all for it, but I also think it's it's having its moment as sort of the buzzword and the way people are attracting users. Um, and so I hope it is having as positive an impact as it's being projected. Um, but I'm always a little bit skeptical when I see these the things and the way they're positioned. Um, I appreciate the understanding and the the goal underneath it, but I also imagine it's. Um, and formulate a little bit to target specifically those users that are interested in that.
1: Do we think, to go back to Carlo's previous point um, and the, the other points you're we making about the current economic situation, that this sort of trend towards um, socially conscious, eth- ethically conscious green products, which would sort of appear to be gaining some momentum, will, will slow now because all of a sudden when people you know, haven't got money, they care a lot more about how much things cost. Um, and also, you know, the world might be focused on other things. I mean, there's of course an argument to say that if we all focused on on doing sustainable, ethical finance, then we might not find ourselves in such a pickle again in the future. Um, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't you know pretend to be able to, to answer that in you know this podcast. But but over an overall, what are people's opinions on whether this trend will slow as a result of what's happening around us
0: now? I, I don't think it's going to slow down. I think I think the whole global warming movement, I think, will continue to run maybe we will get less headlines for a year, but I, I don't think that's going away, and so I don't think this movement's going away either.
1: Anybody else on that one?
0: Well,
4: uh, you, you you can easily also connect the two things. That is, everything we're seeing is uh, ultimately uh, linked to increased population density on Earth. So, uh, yeah, what we consume also, all, all level of density and, and closeness to the animal world. Uh, yeah, of course, you destroy the forest, you get in touch with parts of the animal world that up to the moment has been remote to you, and then all this closeness is opening up new avenue for transmission uh, of things. Yeah, that's clearly this, this, this one is clearly the new world. Uh, it's a little bit uh, uh, frightening because sometimes it looks like some of the science fiction movies, uh, uh, not the ones with the galaxies and and, and, and the uh spaceships uh, by the one just saying what's gonna happen 10 years from now and uh well i i believe i believe science fiction is a very good prediction of the near future is done by smart people and i think uh well all, all the uh all the early warnings are there it's up to us to start uh really believing in them and start uh, acting uh, accordingly
1: well, on those wise words, I'm going to wrap up this week's new show. Um, thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Carlo, do you have a, a Twitter handle or a website you'd like to share?
4: Oh, yeah. It's uh, www.soldo.com. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm a boring person, so my Twitter handle probably has had like five messages in, in its life. So better
3: to go there.
1: <laughs> okay. Thank you. Miles, how about you?
3: You can find me on uh, LinkedIn, Miles uh, C. Stevenson on um, LinkedIn or Miles Stevenson on Twitter. And the website's uh, modularfinance.com and modular
0: without an A.
1: Perfect. Uh, Keith, how about you?
0: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at KM Gross, that's G R O S E, um, and plaid.co.uk. So P L A I D.
1: Perfect. And last by no means least, leader.
0: Uh,
2: at leader on Twitter and LinkedIn or 11FS Foundry.
1: Perfect. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky or blogging about all things coronavirus related on the 11FS website. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it helps others to find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech but who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, I can't believe there are many of those left, um, do pass the podcast along and let them know about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.